Hi, my name is Maggie. The Old Testament reading is found in Psalm 119, 9 to 16. How can young people keep their paths pure? By guarding them according to what you've said. I have sought you with all my heart. Don't let me stray away from any of your commandments. I keep your word close in my heart so that I won't sin against you. You, Lord, are to be blessed. Teach me your statutes. I will declare out loud all the rules that you have spoken. I rejoice in the content of your law, as if we were rejoicing over great wealth. I will think about your precepts and examine all your paths. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget what you have said. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Maddie. The New Testament reading is found in Revelation 10, verses 8 through 10. Then the voice I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go take the open scroll from the hand of the angel, who stands on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the scroll. He said to me, Take it and eat it. It will make you sick to your stomach, but sweet as honey in your mouth. So I took the scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. And it was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I swallowed it, it made my stomach churn. The word of the Lord. Hello, my name is James. Thank you for standing for the gospel reading found in Luke 24, 25 through 32. Then Jesus said to them, you foolish people, your dull minds keep you from believing all the prophets have talked about. Wasn't it necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and then enter into his glory? Then he interpreted for them the things written about himself in all the scriptures starting with Moses and going through all the prophets. When they came to Emmaus, he acted as if he was going on ahead. But they urged him, saying, Stay with us. It is nearly evening, and the day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. After he took his seat at the table with them, he took the bread, blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them. Their eyes were opened, and they recognized him but he disappeared from their sight. They said to each other, weren't our hearts on fire when he spoke to us along the road and when he explained the scriptures for us, the gospel of the Lord. Praise be to our Lord Christ. Let's remain standing as we pray. So Father, we ask that by your Holy Spirit you'd take your word and you would breathe it into our hearts. Cause our eyes to see Jesus and our ears to hear his voice so that in the end our hearts may too come on fire with love for him. We pray these things in his name, and everybody said, amen. You may be seated. Well, we're starting today just a three-week series called Essentials, and we're not talking about essential doctrines or essential beliefs of the faith or anything like that. In fact, we're talking about the essential practices, the things that are part of our life with God. And the reason we're doing this to start out the year is for many of us, a new calendar year is a chance to reset, is a chance to kind of re-up on some of our goals. Next week, we'll talk about essential rhythms, things like a Sabbath and the rule of life and what it means uh, to live that way. Today, we are talking about the essential story, the story of Scripture. Now, 
for a lot of us, the new year is a chance to also kind of re-up on our reading the Bible goals, right? Because if there's one thing we all have in common as Christians, it's that none of us read the Bible enough, right? And so we all feel like, okay, this is the year. I'm going to do it. I've got a new plan. I've got a new study Bible. I've got a new devotional. It's all wonderful. And it's January 7th, so odds are you're doing okay so far. But if we're honest with ourselves, the Bible is a difficult book. And maybe you haven't been willing to say it because you don't want to be the only Christian to feel that way. You know, maybe you're like thinking that everybody you're surrounded with loves Leviticus, finds nuggets in numbers, and uh, all of, uh, rhema words, and all, of, and all of a sudden you're like, maybe I'm the only one that doesn't get it, so I can't admit that actually this is a hard book to read. Listen, there's a reason why in America we have more Bibles than people in households. We love the idea of it, but when it comes to reading it, we're like, this, this is troubling. And so maybe to start out this morning, it's worth exploring five common approaches to Scripture that are common but misguided. There's something that, okay, I understand that, but actually if you take this as your primary approach, as the primary way that you come to the Scriptures, the thing that you have in your mind when you open the Bible, it's actually going to get you off on the wrong foot. The first is to treat the Bible like a textbook. That is to say, to read for information. Now, we know that this is possible. This happens in, in some academic institutions where uh, the, the professors themselves might not be believers, but they view the Bible as a wonderful document that gives us insight into the anthropology of the ancient Near East, and all of that is fine. But actually, even Christians do this. We, we tend to think of the Bible as this great textbook with all of the information that I need. But the question is, if that is what the Bible is, why is it not organized alphabetically by topic? I mean, it'd be just so much easier if we could just say parenting, P, there it is. These are all the things the Bible has to say about parenting. Or why doesn't it just say things about peace or love? Why can't it be like an encyclopedia? Because it's not. Because it's not how it's supposed to work. Secondly, the other approach is to treat it like a cookbook. Now, not literally, right? Or you'll have a lot of burnt lamb for dinner, some bitter herbs and flatbread. I mean, not literally, but a cookbook as in you read it for formulas and recipes. And so you think that the Bible contains five quick steps to fix your marriage, three ways to guarantee happiness and put a sprinkle of faith and a dash of singing and a smidgen of good acts and voila, the blessed life, you know. <laughs> it doesn't work like that. But maybe you've been around churches that have led you to believe that the Bible works like that because every time the preacher talks, there's always just three easy steps and four key points and seven unmistakable ways. And you're like, wow, where is that in the Bible? Oh, it's not there. Whoops. The third way we tend to treat Scripture is as a coffee table book where we read for inspiration. Now, there are some beautiful passages in the Scripture. There's some gorgeous poetry and beautiful turns of phrases and profound statements. But let me just let you down gently. Most of it does not read like a coffee table book. Most of it is not chicken soup for the Christian soul. 
And so you're going to find yourself, oh, I love this stuff on a plaque. I read that one verse that one time on a plaque somewhere, and you read Jeremiah 29, 11. You're like, I wonder what else Jeremiah has to say. And you're like, oh, dear God. Like, <laughs> weeping and all this stuff. <laughs> Where is the nuggets? <laughs> right? It doesn't work. It's not a coffee table book. You can't read like that. Fourthly, you might treat the Bible like a magic book. Now, what I mean by this is that you imagine that these words themselves have secret power. And if you could just find the right phrase to say three times, then in Jesus' name, add that at the end. Aha. Now, there's something true to, about this. Didn't Jesus answer the devil in the wilderness with Scripture? He did. Isn't there power in the very word of God? Yes, there is. But is the whole book like that? No, it's not. And if you look for that, you look, good luck praying out the genealogies. I mean, really, you're like, oh, and Lord, we just declare that Abraham begat Isaac. I don't know what that's supposed to achieve. It doesn't work like a magic book, okay? And then fifthly, the final approach is to treat the Bible something like a rule book. There was an old Christian song in the 90s that spelled out the acronym of the Bible as basic instructions before leaving earth. Now, this is wrong on so many levels, okay? First of all, because the very end of the Bible does not have us leaving earth, but has heaven descending onto the earth and remaking it. Step one, read the end. But secondly, it's not basic instructions, because if you were to treat the Bible like that, you will be confused. Proverbs, I think it's Proverbs 24 or 25, back-to-back -back verses. One verse says, you must rebuke a fool in his folly lest he head to destruction. The very next verse says, do not rebuke a fool in his folly lest he resent you. And you're like, I don't know what to do. <laughs> because it's not a rule book. You don't read it so that you can know all the answers of how to live. That's not, now, does the Bible con contain instructions for living? Of course it does. Is the book as a whole to be read that way? No, it's not. So how do we read this book? My hope this morning is not to answer every question or resolve every dilemma you've ever had about the Bible. That's impossible. But my hope this morning is to reframe your approach to the Bible so that you don't come to it in any of the ways we've just said, but you come to it in a different way, with a different heart, and that all of a sudden, through this kind of approach, it begins to come alive. And in order to present this to you, I want to say from the outset here that God reveals himself through story. God reveals himself through story. This is why the opening words of scriptures are, in the beginning... I mean, marvelous. That's, that's how stories begin. Now, this doesn't mean it's an untrue story. I'm not saying that this, these are fables or fairy tales. I'm just saying there's a narrative shape to the Scripture. In fact, in some Eastern cultures where the view of life was circular, you just you live, you die, someone else is born and then dies, in a view where everything was cyclical and circular, the Jewish storytellers emerged on the scene and said, no, 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 that, that's not it. History has a beginning. And history will have an ending. Because in the end, history is the story that God is telling in the world. And so the, the, the Jewish storytellers begin by saying, in the beginning, and not just in the beginning, but in the beginning, God. 
this becomes revolutionary. We're going to say more about that in a bit. The Bible, it may be helpful to say, is a story in five acts. A story in five acts. Now, some of you are thinking, oh, well, that's convenient because we're all Western people influenced by the Shakespearean or Elizabethan five-act play. But, I mean, is it really? Actually, in the ancient world, there was a way of structuring dramas in five acts. There was a Roman a dramatist named Terence in about 200 BC, 200 years before Christ, uh, who developed this five-act play. And it, it goes something like this. Act one is a bit of the background, the backdrop of the story. Act two introduces the early conflict, and there's sort of a, a first bit of action. Then act three, there's this, the main action and the conflict sort of intensifies. By act four, you've got kind of the climactic point of the story and then the highest point of tension, and then act five, the resolution. Now, it may be helpful for us to see the Bible unfolding in five acts. And so I'd like to take a few moments this morning and walk you through what that might look like, how we can see the grand narrative of Scripture, and how it, we, it can help us to see this as the great story. Act one is, of course, creation. Now, for many of us, when we read Genesis 1 or 2, the thing we have in the back of our minds is all of the, the contemporary questions about evolution or age of the earth and all of this stuff. But can I say to you that the, if we're going to get the sense of this, what we need to have in the back of our minds is not our questions or our context, but the context in which this story first appeared. So when Moses or the Jewish storytellers began to pass on this story, there were other stories around about the origin of the world, other stories about how the world began. One of the stories was about a god named Marduk, which was a Babylonian deity. And so if they were exiles, Jewish exiles living in Babylon, and they said, Dad, tell me again the story of the world... Because all their neighborhood kids are talking about Marduk and how Marduk killed another god and ripped her body in half. And that's why we have heaven and that's why we have earth. And these Jewish kids are saying, could you, Dad, could you just tell us our story again? And he's like, okay, sit down, honey. In the beginning, God. And the Jewish story says God because it doesn't name a God of a sky and a God of the land and a God of uh, crops and a God of fertility and all, this, all these different pantheon of gods. You got to go find this one and then that one and then this one. The Jewish story says there's only one God you need to know about. He's the God who started it all. He's the sovereign overall in the beginning God. And then there's other ancient stories that basically said that these gods made humans to do the work that they didn't want to do. You know, free slave labor. Instead, in the Genesis story, we have God saying he makes humans as the crowning piece of his creation and looking back at it, and he says, this is very he makes humans in his image so they can represent him, reflect him, be his vice regents of his rule throughout this world. Genesis actually shows us a God who not only makes the world on purpose, but makes the world with purpose. John Walton, an Old Testament professor at Wheaton, goes through great detail to argue that actually the creation story is a story of the functional origins of the world. In other words, the way everything got put in its place, the way everything got ordered, 
the way things were arranged. And that's why when you look at it, there's light and there's darkness, there's night and there's day, there's land and there's sea and there's sky. And there's the sense that these first, this poem in Genesis 1 is a story of God ordering the world and putting things in its right function and order. And the reason that matters is because Act 2 is the story of the fall. And the story of the fall is not how human beings came to break God's arbitrary rules and that old fussy rule master up in heaven somewhere got mad. The story that Genesis tells is a story of a world breaking apart from the very order God built in it. So look at this with me. What happens in Genesis 3? The relationship between humans and God gets pulled apart. To the point where Adam and Eve are hiding from God. They're like, what are you doing? God made you. He talked to you. Now, God, we don't want to see you. That's what sin has done. Genesis 4, brothers rise up against one another. Cain murders Abel and his very blood cries out. Genesis 9, the story of the flood, is the story of the very ground giving way and the waters of the deep coming. The whole order of the cosmos has been disrupted. Things are not working. Genesis 11, societies get together and say, we're going to do something. We're going to build a tower. And God says, listen, this is not just you organizing yourself. This is you organizing yourself apart from God, apart from me. And so it will not stand. And the result is division and chaos. C.S. Lewis said, heaven is for the people who've spent their whole life saying to God, thy will be done. Judgment in hell is for the people who spent their whole life saying, my will be done, and God saying, okay then, have it your way. And Genesis 3 through 11 is essentially that, is God saying to human beings, okay, okay, you were supposed to be regents of my rule, you were supposed to be the ones who carry out my purposes, but because you rejected the order and the purpose and the structure of all of this, fine, have it your way then. And the very fabric of the cosmos is ripping at the sea. Sin is not arbitrary disobedience to God. It's working against the very grain of the universe. That's why the psalmists in the Proverbs, they say, God, you established the foundations of the deep by your wisdom, by your knowledge. You ordered it. And to work against your word, to work against your wisdom, is to see the cosmos come apart at the seams. That's what the fall is. And then the story slows down in Act 3. All of a sudden, Genesis 12. Have you ever noticed if you've tried to read the Bible in one-year plan, you're doing good. Genesis 1, 2, you're fine. 3 through 11 flies by. I mean, covers a lot of ground, a lot of generations. You're like, wow, this is amazing. And all of a sudden, Genesis 12, the story slows down. And you're meant to exhale because this is, remember, Act 3, this is the main conflict. This is the main drama unfolding. It's about God calling one man and saying through your family, I'm going to rescue all the families of the earth. Through this family, you are the hope of salvation and redemption. Not the Skywalkers. (laughs) Their family was the hope of the galaxy. But the family of Abraham. God calls Abraham in Genesis 12, makes a covenant with him in Genesis 15. And the rest of the Old Testament is the drama of saying, well, will it happen? 
Will these people who were chosen to carry the cure actually carry the cure? And by the end of the Old Testament, you discover, no, not only are these people unable to carry the cure, they themselves are infected. I like to use the metaphor of a zombie apocalypse. The whole world is infected except for one family, one man, on a mission to save the world. And he drives with the antidote to the zombie center of the world, also known as Manhattan. So that's where everything happens in the movies. And he arrives in New York City, and they're thinking, ah, this is the guy who's got the antidote to turn back the zombie apocalypse. And they come up to the van, and the guy's, ah, he himself is a zombie. And you're like, oh, no, he's infected. How are we going to survive? How do we make it through this, right? This is essentially what happens to Israel is a zombie apocalypse, though. No. <laughs> this is essentially the story. Every part of Israel comes apart. Israel was the family, they were the nation, they were the people that were supposed to be the vehicle through whom God put the world back together again. Instead, Israel herself comes apart at the seams. If you know a bit of the story of the Old Testament, Israel as a nation gets ripped in two. Because of their disobedience, because of their idolatry, you've got a northern kingdom with ten tribes, a southern kingdom with two tribes. Eventually the north gets scattered by Assyria around 722 B.C. They, they get scattered. The, the, the southern kingdom of Judah gets taken captive by Babylon in 584, 585, 586, somewhere around there. And all of a sudden you're thinking, this is it. The dream is over. And you look at every institution that Israel had going for you. You look at the priests. You're like, the priests, they're the good ones. And the end of the book of Judges, you're like, these priests are like vigilante justice people. They are no good. They're oppressing the people. They're exploiting the poor. You, you think, well, the prophets, the prophets got it going on. Then you read Jonah, and you're like, oh, no, this is the worst prophet ever. You know, he doesn't even want people to repent. Like the kings, the kings will do it. The kings can't, no, they can't even stop the invading armies. The kings are carried off. And this is why Jeremiah keeps weeping, if you ever do read Jeremiah. Because all of the pieces have come apart. And if you stopped there, you'd say, well, that's a pretty depressing story. But act four, just when the conflict and the tension has reached its highest point, in the fullness of time, Jesus comes. And Matthew opens his gospel with the genealogy. Not because Matthew thinks genealogies are riveting ways to start a book. But because Matthew's trying to say, God hasn't moved on to a different story. You know that story that he started with Abraham? He means to complete it. And from Abraham's family did come one who would rescue the world. And his name is Jesus. And so Matthew sets this up as a way of saying that whole story that went before in Act 1 and 2 and 3 was not a waste, was not scrapped. It's not over. It's not like God closed the book and said, let's write something different and something new. It's God saying, I never abandoned my promises. I never scrapped my projects. I never forget my people. And if I said I was going to rescue the world through Abraham's family, then I will rescue the world through Abraham's family. And that's what Jesus is. That's who Jesus is. And Matthew, maybe of all the gospel writers, is most intent on helping us see the parallels. 
And so we see the story of Jesus as actually the story of Israel recapitulated, recapped. And so the story of Jesus, as Matthew tells it, is just like Israel went down into Egypt, Jesus went down into Egypt. Just as Israel wandered for 40 years, Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days. Just as Moses emerged and went up to the mountain to give the the commandments, Jesus goes up on the hillside and begins to teach them about the kingdom of God. In fact, there's, there's a structure in Matthew's gospel that divides very nicely, not into 28 chapters, but into five parts to match the first five books of the Bible as a way of saying God's answer is Jesus. God's response is Jesus. God's culmination of the story is Jesus. And then because of Jesus, we have Act 5, literally found in the book of Acts, where the followers of Jesus are filled with the Spirit of God. And that just as Jesus was the anointed one, they become the little anointed ones to carry on the mission of God in the world. And the story unfolds through all of these letters that Paul will write and Peter will write and James will write and John will write, all of that stuff to say to us, This is how we live now in our scene on the stage, our part of the story. I love in particular the letter called Ephesians because Paul seems to know very well how the whole drama of Act 2 and Act 3 is the world coming apart at the seams. And so Paul in his brilliant little letter called Ephesians shows how all things come together in Christ. I heard this amazing um, chapel talk from N.T. Wright online about the the big picture of Ephesians, and he points out how in Ephesians 1.10, it says, in Jesus all things in heaven and on earth come back together again. That's Genesis happening. And then Ephesians 2, you see that sinners, people who've been alienated from God, become reconciled with God. So all of a sudden, there's that relationship being repaired. Genesis 3 is Jews and Gentiles being repaired. That's like the the fulfillment of of Cain and Abel, the brothers, if you will, the the sibling stuff come back together again. Jews and Gentiles, Ephesians 3. Then Ephesians 4, the church is to live in this kind of unity. Ephesians 5, male and female come together in Christ. Ephesians 6, all of the power differentials in the world, slaves and masters, children and parents. Paul says, look, in Christ, they all get relativized because the world is being put back together again in Jesus. That's the story. That's the story. And actually, there's a bonus act. An act that has sort of begun but is not yet fully come. It's the act of new creation. And so when you glimpse the end of the story in 1 Corinthians 15 and in Revelation 21, what do you see? You see resurrection. You see bodies being made new again. You see heaven and earth being made new again. You see the new heaven and the new earth being together again. And so the final end of the story is actually not a return to the beginning. Catch this. It's not a return to the beginning. It's the completion and perfection of the story. It's a completion of the beginning. What began in a garden will end in a garden city. What began with Adam and Eve will be completed with the bride and with Christ. All of the stuff comes to its rushing culmination in the end of the story. And John gets a glimpse of it. See, this is the story we've been given. Now, if we approach the Bible this way, I want to say three things about what that means about how to read it. 
The first is that we need to enter the story. We need to enter it. N.T. Wright says it this way. He says, we read scripture in order to be refreshed in our memory and understanding of the story within which we ourselves are actors to be reminded where it has come from and where it is going to and hence what our own part within it ought to be. Now imagine if you show up at the Denver Performing Arts Center or the Pike Speaks Center and you're there to see a Broadway and right at the intermission they come and find you in your seat and they're like, Sven, we're so glad you're here, Sven. This is your scene. And you're like, I'm sorry, what? I thought I was just a spectator. I paid for this seat. They're like, no, 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 you're on the stage in five. And you're like, what? I, I need to know where's the story been going? What's, hap what's been happening? What's the end of this story? How do I know what my scene is? What Wright is saying is that's what the scripture does for you. It tells you what's happened. It tells you where it's going and then says, now by the power of the Holy Spirit, get on the stage. This is your scene. This is your moment. No more talking about Lewis and Bonhoeffer and Augustine and Calvin. Great, wonderful, but this is your scene. You're alive now. What are you going to do on the stage? Uh. So we don't read the Bible so that we can memorize rules or have formulas. We read the Bible so that we can enter into the story and say, God, how does my life tell your story? How does my life contribute to your story? So we've got to enter the story. And I want to just, this, this may be too much, this is too much to go into right now. But I just want to give you three practical things to ask when you read the Bible so that you can get a sense of the story. The first is observation. What is going on here? You, you, might, you might ask, what's the setting? What's the backdrop? What's the context? If you're reading one of those New Testament letters, read it all the way through. If you're reading one of the prophet books, figure out, okay, where a lot of the prophet stuff was taking place during stories of kings that are somewhere in 1 Kings or 2 Kings. You say, well, what was the king like in that time period. What's going on here? A simple little study of the Bible might help with that. The Bible, Gordon Fee says, has eternal relevance and historical particularity. Yes, it's got eternal relevance, but it wasn't first written to you. It had a time of history from which it emerged. Just ask her, what's, what is going on here? What, what's going on? I mean, imagine not being a Star Wars person and then just going to the theater for The Last Jedi. You'd be like, I have no idea what's going on. Right. There's some, there's a, you gotta, gotta catch what's going on. Okay, second thing, what did it mean for them? Interpretation. What did it mean for them? Just like I said to you about Matthew's genealogy. Why is it there? What's Matthew trying to say? Thirdly, application. What does it mean for us? Notice how we do get to us, but we get to us third. We don't start with, okay, God, here I am. Speak, Lord. Turn the page. Okay. Uh, what's going on? What did it mean for them? What does it mean for us? That's all part of how to enter the story. Secondly, though, we need to let the story enter us. We need to let the story enter us. In Ezekiel, there's this scene where the angel of the, of the Lord says to Ezekiel, says, take the scroll and eat it, human one. He says, look, you're going to feed your belly until you're, uh, until you're full, and it will be sweet to you. 
And then in the book of Revelation, there's kind of a, a parallel to that story. We heard it in our New Testament reading where the angel says, John, eat the scroll. It's going to be sweet to your mouth, but it's going to make your stomach churn. In the book of Revelation, verse 10, it says, So I took the scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I swallowed it, it made my stomach churn like Taco Bell at midnight. <laughs> Seemed like a good idea at the time. Tasted so good. And then two hours later, why God? <laughs> the scripture is meant to mess with us. You, you might hear it, you might read it and think, man, that's so good. I love what that just said. And then the next day you're like, oh no. Oh no, that's me. <gasps> oh, that's not my roommate. That's me. So let the story enter us, and then thirdly and finally, we need to see Jesus as the center of the story. It should be clear by now when we walk through Act 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and the bonus act, it should be clear now who the drama is really about. Now, you've got a scene in the story. Your scenes matter. Your lines matter. Your life matters for God's story. But let's not make any mistake. This is the drama of how God in Christ is reconciling all things to himself. The center of the story is Jesus. So before you take encouragement from David and Goliath and say, I need to be like David, say, thank God Jesus was the true son of David who slayed the giant on my behalf. And when you see Jesus as the center of the story, what begins to happen is you begin to understand that if you are in Christ, then what is true of Jesus becomes true of you. And so when Jesus says, I'm the light of the world, and then he also says, and you are the light of the world. And if he's the anointed one and we become the little anointed ones, and if he is righteous, then by his righteousness we become righteous. And if he is the son of God, then by his grace we become children of God. You see how this works? It doesn't work because of the, this is our modern kind of way, a postmodern way of saying it is, you're just great because you're you, and that's, that's kind of true, but it's really true because you're in Christ. And so everything that is true of Jesus becomes true of you when you are in Christ. And so you have to see Jesus as the center of the story. In our gospel reading this morning, it said that the disciples, disillusioned and disappointed disciples on the road to Emmaus, heard Jesus show how all of the scriptures spoke of him. And they said, did not our hearts burn? Your hearts won't burn if you want to grab little verses from the Bible. Your hearts won't burn if you look for the Bible to be a crystal ball about your life. When you open up the story of Scripture and you see Jesus, and you see the beauty of God's redemption, and you see how you find your place in it, that's when your heart burns. Would you bow your heads this morning as we pray? We get to come to the table of the Lord this morning. This is the place where we remember the centerpiece of the story, Jesus himself. We remember his body and his blood, the bread and the cup. And we join in it not only by receiving it, but by saying, God, make us like this bread and this cup that is blessed, and broken, and given to the world. Before we come, it's our practice to...
pray a prayer of confession. We pray a prayer of confession because confession is a way of saying, God, I'm putting down the pen. I don't need to write my own story. I don't need to be the captain of my own destiny. Putting down the pen and saying, God, my life for your story. 